If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to uh, first open them to Philippians. Uh, and we're going to read a paragraph beginning in verse 10. There'll be a couple other scriptures that I'll read as we proceed through the thought of the morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking on behalf of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father God, once again, as we approach your word this morning, we thank you, Father, for the writings of the great apostle. We thank you that in many times he speaks to the issue of the day. And I would pray as we move through the message this morning that you will be honored and glorified. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Education, as you know, is, is highly valued in America. Some 62% of your fellow citizens have attended some college. Yet only, believe it or not, only about 30% have actually graduated from a college or university. It is my hope that you will come away from the Master's University with more than a degree. A humility of spirit that develops you into a lifelong learner. An understanding that, the Christian, that, that for the Christian, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, all of life carries with it a spiritual dimension. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now you can't get much more mundane than that. Paul in that verse is very clear that he's talking about every single part of our life, no matter how mundane that might be. For you, though, you are engaged in the pursuit of a lifetime. This pursuit involves a number of things, and this morning what I would like to do would be to leave you with three. In Philippians 4, the passage we read this morning, Paul had learned through the power of the Holy Spirit, how to be content no matter what his situation. The Apostle John, writing in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, describes the world system by three characteristics. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, a, totally, a life totally committed to self-centeredness, and self-gratification. The lust of the eyes, materialism, lives driven by the goal of material accumulation. The pride of life, worldly security, one security resting in who they are and what they possess. When I was uh, a young young man, there was a very important man that made a major difference in my life. I was in my 20s, 
And at that particular time, uh, one of the big issues was, one of the great criticisms of evangelicalism was uh, that it was shallow in the sense of the kind of scholars that were involved in it, which is absolutely untrue. But a man came along that really made a difference in my life in apologetics, and that was the late Fr Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, back in 1979, predicted this for America, that people would adopt two impoverished values, personal peace and affluence. Personal peace meant just to be left alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally involved or disturbed. That has obviously morphed into what I would call a viral individualism in our culture. Today we have self-interest on steroids. And this has absolutely permeated religion as well. The United States has never been, quote-unquote, more spiritual than it is today. The problem with it is, spiritual is entirely personal, with one reaching their ultimate potentiality. Listen, if you want to know more about yourself, you can join a church in Denver, the International Church of Cannabis. You can take your bong, and you can take your marijuana, and sit in a congregation of 500 and find yourself. Affluence means an overwhelming and even increasing prosperity, a life made up of things, things, and more things, said Schaefer. It becomes a success judged by an ever higher level of material abundance. Listen, economics in America is the measure of personal success. The gross domestic product, the unemployment rate, Wall Street, that's what we all think about. That, that, that is what governs much of life today in America. It filters down into the churches as well. Once again, this individualism has replaced what I would call gospel communities in many, many churches. It has also filtered into higher education. Today, higher education, for many people, is looked at as a product. The students are the consumers. Let me tell you something right now. You're spending a lot of money, but you know what you're doing? You are purchasing an opportunity. You are not purchasing a grade. Did you hear that? And many times we get, we get uh, people calling in, moms and dads calling in, questioning why a student didn't get an A in a class. Well, you know what's happened in terms of grade inflation. The D has become the C, the C has become the B, the B has become the A. And I believe it all goes back to this idea of consumerism. Today, why be educated? Because statistically, a college grad makes so much more money a year, over, much more over than the average. Double the salary that you would get if you were not a college graduate. Well, let me, lest we think that Schaefer's observations are unique to our times, let me take you back to 1702, okay? 
That is nearing the end of what we call the Puritan century, which lasted really from Plymouth, 1620, until 1720. That period of time, especially from the middle of uh, the 1600s, was dominated by a father and son who were both pastors in Massachusetts. Father Increase and Father Cotton Mather. And in 1702, Cotton Mather wrote his masterpiece, the Magnalia Christi Americana. This work was the greatest work ever done in terms of laying out Puritan culture of the past 100 years. It's interesting that historical, historical or historian Paul Johnson writes this. Mather, okay, Cotton Mather, put his tiny finger on the intricate contradiction, don't forget we've already talked about with Schaefer, in the Puritan mission, their Protestant ethic, their intensity of religious endeavor, which was the source of their law-abiding industry, contained the seeds of its own disillusion. As Mather put it, listen carefully, religion brought forth prosperity, and the daughter destroyed the mother. 1702. What happened in Boston was that wealth became an outward symbol of inward grace. No longer did children be admitted into the church as members by a testimony. If their parents were members, they automatically became a member. That was called the halfway covenant in Massachusetts. Paul understood what it was like to live both in need, as we read, and in prosperity. Young people, learn early, 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. God must be your source of contentment, not self-centeredness, not materialism, not self-centeredness, not self-sufficiency. You know why? Because you can never get enough of those things. We can live a life in a world that calls for personal peace and affluence because, as Paul writes, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Secondly, a pursuit of a lifetime that you're all involved in is a matter of focus. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you will, just over a page. Verses 12 to 14. Paul is talking about his sanctification. Now that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, not a, sorry, not that I have already attained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make... I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the high upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's all, that's all framed in athletics. Okay? Another great passage that deals with this is over in Hebrews, chapter 12. Let me read it to you, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us 
also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why do, why do we look to Jesus? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is our example in this case. Jesus lived in Judea. He lived a life of rejection. He then went to the cross. He then was resurrected. And where does he sit today? At the right hand of the Father. Jesus also had a mission. And for us, it's the same way in terms of how we focus. When I was a high schooler, one of the greatest challenges in track and field was to break the four-minute mile. Louis Zamperini had dedicated his life to breaking the four-minute mile, but when he was injured in World War II, that ended his career. So all the way up through the 40s and into the early 50s, everybody that ran just couldn't quite get over the four-minute mile. But in February of 1954, Roger Bannister, a doctor, a med medical doctor in England, became the first person to break the four-minute mile. Less than three months later, John Landy from Australia also broke the four-minute mile and actually bested Bannister's time. Well, what was great about this was that that summer, that June, in Vancouver, Canada, the British Commonwealth Games were held. And in that, obviously, the two would meet in the, four, in the mile. The race began with Landy leading after the first quarter mile. He led by about two yards, three yards in the second quarter of a mile. Third quarter of a mile, he was still ahead. And as they made the final turn into the home stretch of the race, as they were going down towards the finish line, Landy took his eye off the finish line and looked over his left shoulder. And as he looked over his left shoulder, Roger Bannister passed him on the right and won the race. A great example, isn't it? Of focus. Young people, listen. You're at the starting line of a marathon, a race that ends only when you meet Jesus face to face. Our goal is Christ likeness. And we can use Hebrews here as an example of what that means. Of the price, in terms of carrying out his mission, the price that our Savior had to pay to allow us to be here this morning. You show me a haughty, prideful, self-centered Christian, and I'll show you an immature Christian that will not finish well. Why? Their focus is somewhere else. You have the fleshly tendency 
always to compare yourself with somebody inferior to, you, to yourself. Sometimes, as a believer, you tend to try to leverage God with your good works. Isaiah had it right in Isaiah 6. The Christian who is moving toward maturity continues to focus on Christ. The closer you get to Him, through His Word and the Spirit's filling, the more you see yourself as you really are, a poor, wretched sinner. Lastly, the pursuit of a lifetime takes place under the providence of God. Very familiar verse, over, overused and not really well thought through. Romans 8, 28. What is the context of that verse? All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. If you read the rest of that particular passage where, this, where you find this verse, what you will, what you will find basically is a place or a context of suffering and fallenness, the effect of sin on all creation. Well, what is this idea that all things work together for good? You know, it's really easy just to, to slide through that and go right over all things work together. For, no, no. All things work together. Together is the key word. And that's where the providence of God comes into play. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural, which I believe is the greatest speech ever delivered by an American president. One reason I really like it, it was only 720 words. <laughs> he spoke it in literally 10 minutes. This speech is the most theological, perceptive speech ever delivered by an American president. Abraham Lincoln understood sorrow. He understood suffering. His fiancée his fiance died of scarlet fever. He lost, two, he lost two sons. He lost Edward, and then he lost Willie while he was president. And then on top of that, he had the Civil War. But Abraham Lincoln understood providence. I'm going to read you the, the second to the last paragraph of the speech, and I want you to listen very carefully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And here he's going to quote Matthew 18, 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be the offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. And then Lincoln says this, If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both, watch this, who he blames, both north and south, this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Finally do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondmen 200 year, bondsmen 200 year, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said. The judgment 
of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You know, it wasn't even appreciated when he gave this speech because everybody thought he was going to get up there and talk about how great the North was. But he didn't do that because he understood actually what was going on. He actually understood that God had his sovereign hand over all of the Civil War. Young people, God is in total control of all of his creation. He reigns supreme, and his will is carried out and fulfilled in every detail. His ultimate goal is to bring glory to himself. Now today there are at least two extreme views concerning sovereignty that must be rejected. First, that God has limited himself in terms of his complete knowledge and therefore doesn't know the future fully. He is as surprised as you are when you find out a family member has been struck by a car. Or secondly, that since God is, and we, we can run into this very easily, since God is the efficient cause of every action, we are nothing more than puppets on a string, a deterministic and fatalistic Christianity. What then is the providence of God? providence of God is simply this. Nothing comes into your life that God does not allow and use for his own purposes and glory. And yet at the same time, the mystery is that we are accountable for all our actions. Charles Hodge, the great Presbyterian theologian of the 19th century, some 50 years as president of Princeton Seminary, said this, and listen carefully. An infinitely wise, good, and powerful God is everywhere present, controlling all the events, great and, great and small, necessary and free. Now listen to this. In a way perfectly consistent with the nature of his creatures and within his own excellence. Well, what is our nature? We are fallen. We are marred and distorted. Luther put it like this. Incurvatus ad se. And what Luther meant by that was is that what sin does, it, it turns, what it does is, it, we are turned into a, and, a, on, and on ourselves. Once again, the issue of selfishness. So, we're fallen first, right? Secondly, though, we're rational. We can think, we can plan, we can decide, we can make choices. We're relational. Love and hate. We're self-conscious. We know who we are as human beings. We have self-awareness. All of that fits into the context as we relate to God as to his providence. How, the, how does God use all of this and harmonize this with his sovereignty and with our personhood is divine providence. Young people, your life is a tapestry. And over a lifetime, in times of uncertainty, there will be pain, there will be suffering, as well as the good times. There'll be failures and successes. But you can rest in the fact that your salvation is secure and that a sovereign God 
is in control. Remember, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And godliness with contentment is great gain. Focus on Jesus. Remembering that nothing will touch your life that is not under and, di and directed by our sovereign, loving, and heavenly Father. You know, you can get up in the morning. You might face all kinds of things, but you can be confident that in your actions, God is still sovereign and God is still in control. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? And who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory and honor forever. Amen.